you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery Starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, literary mansplainer-in-chief, and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black. Thrilled, as always, to be with you as we continue on our journey of horror. And I was thinking this morning, before I came into the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library with my steaming cup of English breakfast tea and my stupid little dog squash, I was thinking to myself, Michael, what is, I'm like checking in with myself because feeling a little bit uncertain about how I was going to proceed today with this recording. And I have noticed that I have been feeling increasingly uncertain as I begin these recordings every single time, wondering if I'm doing a good job and thinking, well, what's different this season as opposed to last season? And first of all, I guess I was wondering last time whether I was doing a good job also. So I guess maybe that part hasn't changed. But what seems to have changed, I think, is as I begin these episodes time and again, I just don't know like what to discuss, what to talk about as we head into the reading. And it's because uh, my day, like my days, like so many of your days, have become relentlessly monotonous during this pandemic. And so from week to week, really, there's not much change. It's all, you know, my schedule. And yes, I prefer the comedic pronunciation schedule to schedule. My schedule is pretty much the same every single day. I get up, uh, to quote the Guns N' Roses song, I get up around seven, get out of bed around nine, and I don't get uh, out of bed around nine. I get up, I get up, I get out of bed around seven. But then I come downstairs, I read the news, 
Yes, read the news. I procrastinate for as long as I can. Then I do a little bit of writing because I'm I'm writing something that may end up being a book and may just end up getting thrown in the garbage, but I've been working on it for a while. And then I take a shower and then um, I have some free time, you know, recreational time that I can do what I want with. Um, then, I, you know, maybe I'll play the piano for a little bit or maybe I'll watch it episode of a TV show for a little bit or what have you. Then I have lunch. Then I have more free time. Then I nap. Then I have more free time. Then I eat. Then I make dinner or wait for Martha to make dinner for me. We, you know, we alternate. Then I have more free time. Then I go to bed. So my day is almost exclusively made up of free time because I am unemployed and seemingly unemployable. And so the days have a kind of monotony to them that I don't hate, to be honest, but it makes it kind of difficult when I come in here to record because I have nothing new to report. And I wonder how many of you are also feeling the monotony of these past low many months. I suspect a lot of you. It's been a challenge. And the challenge is mental. I mean, it's physical too for those of us who have gotten sick. I have not yet, but I will. But it's mental primarily. And it's hard to stay in good spirits, I think. Um, as we, as we merrily, as merrily we roll along. And so that, that's it. Just a message, I guess, of acknowledgement of my own mental frailty and some encouragement to all of you who are listening to, uh, you know, just take a moment and be like, yeah, things are a little bit tough, but we're, we're getting through. You're getting through. I'm proud of you. We're entering a new volume uh, in our lives and in the book. The new volume in our lives is presumably we're all going to be vaccinated soon you know, and then we can get out of this shit. The new volume in the book is volume two. Frankenstein is prophesizing that these, that the death of Justine Moritz and the death of William are just going to be the first of many. Volume two, chapter one. Nothing is more painful to the human mind than after the feelings have been worked up by a quick succession of events, the dead calmness of inaction and certainty which follows and deprives the soul both of hope and fear. I just have to interject because last night, the wife and I, you know the wife, we watched uh, the documentary Don't Fuck With Cats. And very briefly, it's about, if you haven't seen it, a, ser uh, a, a killer. Okay, first of cats, then of other things, and the internet sleuths who are trying to track him down. And ultimately, what makes the documentary, it is a compelling documentary, but it's kind of flawed because the internet sleuths who are trying to track him down ultimately have literally nothing to do with his eventual capture, okay? But they're the central characters in this thing. But you can tell that they feel the exact same emotion. Uh, nothing is more painful to the human mind than after the feelings have been worked up by a quick succession of events, the dead calmness of inaction and certainty which follows and deprives the soul both of hope and fear. That's what they were going through as they were watching this killer being chased across countries and, and the globe. And, you know, it's kind of like the feeling after the election that we have of working really, really hard, or in, in my case, observing really, really hard and advocating really, really hard. And then the outcome occurs and you're left with that kind of weird 
adrenalized inaction where you're looking for the next thing. You're looking for the high to continue in a way. So I'll continue because all I'm doing is blathering. Justine died. She rested and I was alive. The blood flowed freely in my veins, but a weight of despair and remorse pressed on my heart, which nothing could remove. Sleep fled from my eyes. I wandered like an evil spirit, for I had committed deeds of mischief beyond description horrible, and more, much more, I persuaded myself, was yet behind. Yet my heart overflowed with kindness and the love of virtue. I had begun life with benevolent intentions and thirsted for the moment when I should put them into practice and make myself useful to my fellow beings. Now all was blasted. Instead of that serenity of conscience which allowed me to look back upon the past with self-satisfaction and from thence to gather promise of new hopes, I was seized by remorse and the sense of guilt which hurried me away to a hell of intense tortures such as no language can describe. You know, settle down, Susan. I'll say it again. Settle down, Susan, would you? Why don't you settle down, Susan? Come on. You know, I understand guilt. I understand remorse. But this beating yourself up over something that ultimately you didn't do is frankly unbecoming. Like, I understand. You unleashed the monster into the world, just like the Chinese biologists created the virus in that lab in Wuhan and then set it loose. But, you know, it happened. This state of mind preyed upon my health, which had perhaps never entirely recovered from the first shock it had sustained. I shunned the face of man. All sound of joy or complacency was torture to me. Solitude was my only consolation. Deep, dark, death-like solitude. My father observed with pain the alteration perceptible in my disposition and habits, and endeavored by arguments deduced from the feelings of his serene conscience and guiltless life to inspire me with fortitude and awaken in me the courage to dispel the dark cloud which brooded over me. Do you think, Victor, said he, that I do not suffer also? No one could love a child more than I loved your brother. Tears came into his eyes as he spoke. But is it not a duty to the survivors that we should refrain from augmenting their unhappiness by an appearance of a moderate grief? It is also a duty owed to yourself, for excessive sorrow prevents improvement or enjoyment or even the discharge of daily usefulness, without which no man is fit for society." Snap out of it, Susan. Why don't you snap out of it? That's what he's saying. Snap out of it, Susan. Look, I think we've all been there, right? We feel, you know, uh, maybe somebody dies and we feel, I don't know, somehow responsible or partially responsible or feel like, oh, we could have done more to help the person. We should have been there more. And we let that cloud our daily lives. And then, you know, when you think about it even for a second, you're like, well, is this what that person would want? Would they want this person that I loved? Would they want me to be miserable because they died? You know, most cases, the answer is no. When I die, the answer will be yes. Yes, I do not want your happiness to continue after I have departed because I am narcissistic like that. So my wife, for example, when I die, I expect her to wear the veil 
for the rest of her life. Wear the veil, Martha. But yeah, I mean, we all go through grief in different ways. It is, I, I mean, look, have I ever felt responsible for another person's death? I guess not, no. Even the guy I ran over with the car. It was dark, and he wasn't wearing a reflective vest. Did I let it ruin my mood? Sure. For a couple days, and then I snapped out of it. Snap out of it, Susan. And that's what dad is saying to Victor. You know, come on, man. Like, it is our duty to continue. We're not helping anything by stewing in our own sadness. This advice, although good, was totally inapplicable to my case. I should have been the first to hide my grief and console my friends if remorse had not mingled its bitterness and terror, its alarm, with my other sensations. Now I could only answer my father with a look of despair and endeavor to hide myself from his view. About this time, we retired to our house at Belle Reve. This change was particularly agreeable to me. The shutting of the gates regularly at 10 o'clock and the impossibility of remaining on the lake after that hour had rendered our residence within the walls of Geneva very irksome to me. I was now free. Yeah, free to find the big buddy. You know, now you're out in your country place. You can wander the hills, singing the sound of music and looking for big buddy. Often, after the rest of the family had retired for the night, I took the boat and passed many hours upon the water. Sometimes with my sails set, I was carried by the wind, and sometimes, after rowing into the middle of the lake, I left the boat to pursue its own course and gave way to my own miserable reflections. I was often tempted when all was at peace around me, and I the only unquiet thing that wandered restless in a scene so beautiful and heavenly." If I accept some bat or the frogs whose harsh and interrupted croaking was heard only when I approached the shore. Often, I say, I was tempted to plunge into the silent lake that the waters might close over me in my calamities forever. But I was restrained when I thought of the heroic and suffering Elizabeth whom I tenderly loved and whose existence was bound up in mine. I thought also of my father and surviving brother. Should I, by my base desertion, leave them exposed and unprotected to the malice of the fiend whom I had let loose among them? So, you know, he's got some suicidal thoughts, as folks do sometimes. You know, he's thinking, you know, I'm so miserable and I should just throw myself into the lake and, you know, stuff my pockets full of rocks and drop to the bottom. But, you know, Elizabeth would be bummed. My dad would be bummed. And worse, the big buddy's going to come and find him in the middle of the night, you know, and strangle him the way he did poor William. So I can't. So instead, I'm just stuck blowing myself around this goddamn lake here at Belle Reve for hours on end, wondering what to do with myself. I mean, he's, you know, he's turning into Hamlet at this point. He's having such a kind of existential crisis to be or not to be. That's what we're getting here. And Hamlet is maybe my least favorite Shakespeare play that I've read. I haven't read them all, but I don't like Hamlet. It's just too much. It's too, it's too emo for me. I don't need all the emo guitar strumming. I don't need all the shoegazing. I don't need all the angst. I understand that that's the point. I understand that, you know, everybody's, the whole point of Hamlet is like, what am I going to do? I'm such a whiny little bitch. But it's like, you know, plays and, and you know, the contemplation of suicide is not particularly compelling, literarily. 
in life, yeah, that's compelling. In real life, if you're the one contemplating it, like that's terrible and tragic. And by all means, like I understand how that could fill your days. But for us as an audience, listening to the contemplation of suicide, particularly in Frankenstein's case, when we know he's not going to do it, to me, it's not, you know, it's not the best genre, even though I'm a guy who likes emo. You know, give me a little My Bloody Valentine. Okay, I'll take it. And speaking of taking, let's take a little break and gaze at our shoes here on Obscure. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. back um you know shoegazing time over let's hope frankenstein decides to take a little action in his life do not let your clouds obscure all your actions right be a man of action victor victor frankenstein be a man of action let us see what he decides at these moments i wept bitterly, and wished that peace would revisit my mind only that I might afford them consolation and happiness, them meaning his family. But that could not be. Remorse extinguished every hope. I had been the author of unalterable evils, and I, we know, Jesus, dude, and I lived in daily fear, lest the monster whom I had created should perpetrate some new wickedness. Oh, 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 look what's coming. I had an obscure feeling that all was not over and that he would still commit some signal crime, which by its enormity should almost efface the recollection of the past. There was always scope for fear. So long as anything I loved remained behind. My abhorrence of this fiend cannot be conceived. When I thought of him, 
I gnashed my teeth. My eyes became inflamed, and I ardently wished to extinguish that life which I had so thoughtlessly bestowed. When I reflected on his crimes and malice, my hatred and revenge burst all bounds of moderation. I would have made a pilgrimage to the highest peak of the Andes, could I, when there, have precipitated him to their base. I wished to see him again, that I might wreak the utmost extent of abhorrence on his head and avenge the deaths of William and Justine. Okay, so now we have some literary thrust, right? Now he has decided, or at least is wishing that he could, track down the monster and destroy him. But one of the chief lines of literary inquiry here is, what exactly is the monster? From a kind of meta point of view, like what is this monster that he created ultimately? What manifestation of himself or of all of us is this monster? Because I'm not convinced yet that the monster is, as he's describing it now, inherently or even a little bit evil. First of all, we don't know that he killed poor William. Second of all, even if he did, we don't understand at all the creation. We don't know anything about it. We only know its appearance and its uh, physical abilities. We know that it is grotesque and we know it is strong, but we know nothing of its mind or its heart. So is the monster just kind of the other, the thing, you know, the dream that we have brought into reality through our own, I don't know, overambition? And is there, and then look, is there something that we can derive from Mary Shelley about that fear? What does it mean? to be 17 and ambitious in this time period. When you're married to a celebrated poet, at least I think he's celebrated at this point, I don't know, but certainly an ambitious poet, and you come from good stock, and your mom is, you know, a big-time feminist, what does it mean to have overarching ambition as a young woman in this time period? What frustrations must you feel right? What benevolence must you feel like you are bringing into the world? Like, what does Frankenstein say? I had begun life with benevolent intentions and thirsted for the moment when I should put them into practice and make myself useful to my my fellow beings. Now all was blasted. So she probably feels herself like benevolent and wanting to put some, be useful to her fellow human beings. She's sitting there in, uh, you know, the Alps writing her story. And what does she conceive but a monster? What is that monster, right? That's the question. What is the monster? Now look, am I dredging up hackneyed lines of literary inquiry? Almost certainly. But it's my first time reading it. I haven't paid any attention to Frankenstein, so fuck it. My whole thing is being hackneyed, but with enthusiasm. Enthusiastic hack. That's what I am, an enthusiastic hack. Because my brain isn't big enough to discover really anything that hasn't been discovered already. That's why when I wrote my book, my new book, A Better Man, like people ask me 
like, you know, the conclusions that I came to and blah, 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 blah. And I tell them all the same thing. Like, I didn't come up with anything. Like, it's all just common sense shit. All I did was write it down. It's depressing, isn't it? As you get older and you realize, like, you have your own benevolent intentions and you want to be useful. And what you end up finding out is, yeah, you, you know, you're pretty much the same as everybody else. You know, you're not, you're not breaking any new ground. You're not doing anything new. You know, you're just kind of doing your best. And generally speaking, your best isn't great. It's fine. Maybe we can take comfort in that. Maybe we can take comfort in the fact that we're all fine. Every once in a while, somebody stumbles across something and, you know, they spill something in a lab and, whoa, it's penicillin, you know, and you're like, oh shit, I made penicillin, but you know, come on, it's an accident. You know what I mean? You left cheese out overnight. Next thing you know, you got a cure for VD. Any progress we make in this life is accidental. We're just doing our best from day to day to day. But, you know, you show up and you hope to have happy accidents. Our house was the house of mourning. My father's health was deeply shaken by the horror of the recent events. Elizabeth was sad and desponding. She no longer took delight in her ordinary occupations. All pleasure seemed to her sacrilege toward the dead. Eternal woe and tears, she then thought, was the just tribute she should pay to innocence so blasted and destroyed. She was no longer that happy creature who in earlier youth wandered with me on the banks of the lake and talked with ecstasy of our future prospects. The first of these sorrows, which are sent to wean us from the earth, had visited her, and its dimming influence quenched her dearest smiles. When I reflect, my dear cousin, said she, on the miserable death of Justine Moritz, I no longer see the world and its works as they before appeared to me. Before, I looked upon the accounts of vice and injustice that I read in books or heard from others as tales of ancient days or imaginary evils. At least they were remote and more familiar to reason than to the imagination. But now misery has come home and men appear to me as monsters thirsting for each other's blood. Well, she just said a mouthful right there, right? Misery has come home, and men appear to me as monsters thirsting for each other's blood. Yet I am certainly unjust. Everybody believed that poor girl to be guilty, and if she could have committed the crime for which she suffered, assuredly, she would have been the most depraved of human creatures. For the sake of a few jewels, to have murdered the son of her benefactor and friend, a child whom she had nursed from its birth and appeared to love as if it had been her own. I could not consent to the death of any human being, but certainly I should have thought such a creature unfit to remain in the society of men. But she was innocent. I know, I feel she was innocent. You are of the same opinion, and that confirms me. Alas, Victor, when falsehood could look so like the truth, who can assure themselves of certain happiness? I feel as if I were walking on the edge of a precipice towards which thousands are crowding and endeavoring to plunge me into the abyss. William and Justine were assassinated, and the murderer escapes. He walks about the world free 
and perhaps respected. But even if I were condemned to suffer on the scaffold for the same crimes, I would not change places with such a wretch. Indeed, Elizabeth. Indeed. So she's speaking now to the darkness of the human heart, and she is speaking to the murderer himself. Or at least that's how Victor Frankenstein is going to interpret it, you know? I feel, you know, it, it, he, he walks about the world free and perhaps respected. But even if I were condemned to suffer on the scaffold for the same crimes, I would not change places with such a wretch. So she's talking to the dude who himself feels himself guilty to, uh, uh, for these crimes. And she's looking him in the eye and say, I, I, you know, I wouldn't trade places with you, dude. Not even if I were condemned to hang like poor Justine. What, you know, Victor Frankenstein's thinking, and and I'll, I'll read it. I listened to this discourse with the extremest agony. I, not in deed, but in effect, was the true murderer. Elizabeth read my anguish in my countenance and kindly taking my hand said, My dearest friend, you must calm yourself. These events have affected me. God knows how deeply. But I am not so wretched as you are. There is an expression of despair and sometimes of revenge in your countenance that makes me tremble. Dear Victor, banish these dark passions. Remember the friends around you who center all their hopes in you. Have we lost the power of rendering you happy? Ah, while we love, while we are true to each other, here in this land of peace and beauty, your native country, we may reap every tranquil blessing. What can disturb our peace? And could not such words from her, whom I fondly prized before every other gift of fortune, suffice to chase away the fiend that lurked in my heart? Even as she spoke, I drew near to her, as if in terror, lest at that very moment the destroyer had been near to rob me of her. What is the destroyer, ultimately? That is the question we are asking ourselves today. And yes, I'm whispering, I do not know why. But that is the question we are asking ourselves. What is the nature of the destroyer? How many destroyers have we all unleashed on this world through our own incompetence and lies, through our own thwarted ambitions? How many monsters do each of us create? On the other hand, look, let's put a positive spin on it. How many angels do we let loose into the world as well through our acts of kindness and compassion? How much of this life do we bear responsibility for? Or how little? What is the nature of action and its consequence? Important questions all. Enthusiastically hackneyed questions all. Because that is what I do here in this time of plague. We ask ourselves all these questions and so many more when our days turn effortlessly into one another, shadows overlapping on shadows. That's what it feels like to me. One shadow laying 
itself on top of another as we go through our days here. Um, Obviously, I'm ending for the day, contemplating the nature of the destroyer and the nature of the creator. I mean, ultimately, this is a theological book, right? Ultimately, this is a book about the nature of creation. And in Mary's time and in our own, these questions go beyond the scientific and they go into the realm of the theological. How could they not? Or at the very least, the metaphysical. Let's call it that, the metaphysical, why don't we? Susan, call it the metaphysical. All right, I will. Into the metaphysical. And, you know, maybe that's what makes this a great book. It, you know, it, it, it necessitates a contemplation of these questions in a very specific way. You know, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a philosophical tome. It's just, it's just a story about a monster, right? And look, everybody likes a monster. Everybody likes a monster. I do. But of course, the story really isn't about the monster. It's about the creator of the monster, the modern Prometheus, in the nature of our own godlike powers in this world to unleash universes, which is what we do, all of us. Every moment of every day, we unleash universes. So something to think about, you know, in your free time. Maybe you don't have as much free time as I do. I got nothing but. You heard my schedule. Nothing but free time here in the wilds of Connecticut. From here, uh, I'm probably going to go have lunch, right? Then I got free time. Then it's nap time. So, you know, what am I going to do? Arts and crafts? Maybe. You know, maybe I'll walk around the block. I'm just kidding. I don't exercise. But think about it, you know? Think about the nature of our existence as creators. Maybe it's something we can talk about on book club. I don't know when you're listening to this, but the next book club is February 1st, 2021. So if you're listening to this as it's coming out and you, you know, and you want to join book club, by all means do that. So, you know, I, I don't like to, uh, you know, whatever. Here we are, the end of the podcast, the end of the episode. And, uh, I'm excited for lunch. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to have because I want to leave you guessing. I want to leave you excited. Gee, what did Michael have for lunch that day? Well, you're going to have to worry about that. You know, think about that and agonize over that. I'm giving you ways to uh, fill your free time if you don't want to contemplate the nature of creation. Think about what I had for lunch. Anyway, I love you. We'll get back to it on another enthusiastically hackneyed episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you Adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein was produced by myself, Michael Ian Black, Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, and Mary Shimkin. It was recorded in the wilds of Connecticut at the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. Theme music by Craig Wedren. If you would like to support this podcast, please join us at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. This is a podcast that does not receive any outside funding other than the funding that you yourself give it. So if you would like to support it, please do patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black.